chapter 1. By God's grace and providence, I do have a chance to preach. I've mentioned before, I planned to start this series last October. And I, for those of you who follow around the daily Bible readings, I've canceled it so many times that this time I did not do daily Bible readings in Jonah 1, but something related somewhere else. Uh, but here we are. And we'll be looking again mainly at the first six verses, but we'll read the whole chapter. And, and here's the question I want you to be asking as we read this chapter. Where is Jonah going? He's going a particular place. Where's he going? Let's pay careful attention to the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the sea into the sea, into the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, a sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will get a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Well, recently I've been looking into cancer and for some reason been doing a little research on that. It's like learning a new language. But I've also seen stories of people who have healed their cancer naturally. They've taken massive action using Food and nutrition and environment and exercise have been able to take their cancer from being sometimes incurable to remission. Now, one thing I've learned is that not all cancers are the same. And what might work for one person does not work for someone else. 
But it is fascinating to see how people have been able to do this. And, and what has also caught my eye is that there are a fairly routine story that, 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 that comes. You'll have a person who has brought their cancer into remission, and then there's a relapse. And maybe you can, can guess how it happens. There's just one story. There was a woman, she, she had this incurable cancer, and she was able to bring it to remission. And then so she and her husband were well off. They're people of means. And she said, you know, let's go celebrate. And so they went on this 50-day travel extravaganza with friends. Started in China, ended in Europe. And she thought, you know, I'm in remission. I'm doing well. They have all this great food. Uh, I'm going to eat everything that they eat. Why not? And you can guess where this is going, can't you? That, that towards the end of those 50 days, she said, honey, I'm not, I'm not feeling well. And at the end, she says, you need to take me back to the hospital. And she was she was able to get back on her routine and, and get it back under control. But it, it was very common for people who were able to get their their cancer into remission through diet relapse when they reverted to their normal lifestyle. Now, can you imagine one of those survivors who, who went through this, you know, uh, that went to remission and relapse, remission and relapse. And they, they, they draw this chain and then someone comes up to them and says, hey, would you like a potato chip? It's just one. Just have a cookie. It's just one. Right? Can you imagine? They, they say, no. It, it, it may just, one may all, be all that it needs to set my body off. Or, or if not, I know that one leads to two, leads to a lifestyle, which leads for me to cancer. And cancer leads to sickness and sorrow and separation and even possible death and, and separation from my family. Thank you, but no, I'll pass. And I think you can see an analogy of what that would be for those particular people to disobedience to the Christian life. God has made you to be holy, to to be set apart so that you can enjoy him and delight in his presence. And each act of disobedience is a step away from his presence. It's away from the Lord, from its holiness, and away from what you were created to be. Now, our society today doesn't even have a category for sin or disobedience. You know, you do you. I just saw there was a YouTube ad for Walmart. It's a very nice young woman, and she self-identified as you know, LGBTQ+. And she was you know, talking about how, hey, every month should be Pride Month, and, and how this is the way that we unlock our freedom and honesty and compassion, right? That's the sense of, well, this is good. And if that would be the case, if we define who ourselves are, well, then what God says and his law would be a threat to your freedom and happiness. Right? There's, there's no category for sin or disobedience, or it's even seen as an oppressive or bad thing. But Scripture says it's something else. Disobedience to God is not something that's arbitrary or pointless, like disobeying some law in the book that's long past its due. It's running away from your only joy and hope and your salvation. And looking at this way, disobedience towards God is a tragedy. It's a disaster. It's just like for the cancer patients where each bite of food endangers your life and your relationships with those that you love. So sin is moving away from God and his glory. Now, that relation, that that analogy only goes so far and actually pretty quickly breaks down. It's not sinful to eat certain types of food, even people who have cancer. It's not sinful necessarily to eat certain types of food. It's limited. There's more to say about sin. It's also deserving God's wrath. But what I want you to see from that analogy of the people who say not even a potato chip is that they understand that it's deadly, it's serious, and it has it takes you in a terrible direction. It's what we're going to see tonight. You know, last time, way back when we talked about 
Jonah and God and the Gentiles, we, 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 the case of the disobedient prophet, um, we saw began to see God's response. Well, tonight we're looking at Jonah and we're just going to focus on his dis- disobedience. And here's the point tonight. Disobedience is disaster. Disobedience is disaster. But it's not the last word. It's not the last word. So first, let's just define disobedience. Kids, you can help me out here. What does it mean to disobey? What does it mean to disobey? Or maybe we could ask it the other way. What does it mean to obey? My, my parents told me obeying is doing what your parents tell you to do completely. You know, no dragging your feet, no shortcuts, no, you know, immediately, right away, no delay tactics, all right? And cheerfully, and even if, you know, you're not bubbling for joy in the inside, at least you're not grumbling and talking back on the outside, and maybe that'll even lead you to joy. And you know what, adults, that's a great paradigm for us as we think about obeying God, too, that we obey him completely, immediately, and cheerfully. Well, what does God say to Jonah? Arise and go to Nineveh. And so we have slides. Um, so Jonah went to Tarshish. So we'll get the, the PowerPoint slides up here. And so you see Nineveh on the right. Joppa is, is right about where Jonah was the port. Nineveh was 550 miles to the east. Tarshish, if, if it's somewhere around there, modern day Spain, Portugal, we're not quite sure, but it's it's all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, 2,500 miles to the west. Excuse me. And so God said, travel by land to the center of the world, 550 miles away. And Jonah travels by sea to the very fringe of the world. And uh, let's just, just see, see, this is the type of boat that Jonah probably took. It's a, it's a Phoenician-style boat. You can see where... They've got the upper deck, and they've got the sail, and they've got the hold beneath. And it's, it's very seaworthy, and it's very wide, and you can carry lots of cargo, but it's not very big. You notice that? Here's a, here's a modern-day recreation. If you look closely, you can see some, some modern-day instruments there. But that's, that's what they look like. That's, that's a pretty small little ship, and it's actually pretty dangerous. In fact, you might be able to argue that Jonah took the more dangerous route, humanly speaking, <laughs> His life would have been just simpler if he had obeyed. Isn't that the way it often is? We, we disobey to make life easier. It turns out to be harder. All right, Paul, thank you. You can, you can turn those off. So God says, do Jonah do A, and Jonah does Z. Or perhaps even you could say, God says, Jonah do A, and Jonah did not A. The exact opposite thing. Now, way back, the case of this obedient prophet month or two ago, we talked about how Jonah's disobedience would have been unthinkable. Jonah, you have one task at the prophet of the Lord. One job is to hear his word and to do it. And yet we realized it was very hard. It was dangerous. The Assyrians were dangerous people. They were not only Gentiles, but they were very nasty people. Uh, Jonah had the fun job of prophesying the resurgence of Israel under King uh, Jeroboam the second, and, and now he had to go preach this message of maybe even mercy and extending life to their enemies. This was a hard command, but the point is Jonah didn't do it. And, and so why does this matter? This is a big question today, right? God's commands and laws seem arbitrary, and, he, and it's a big power play to limit our freedom and potential. But you see, in Scripture, disobedience always ends in disaster. 
Right? This isn't the first time. Just go back to Genesis 3, our par- first parents, Adam and Eve, and Satan questions them, did God really say? And ultimately, it's the question of God's goodness. Right? God gives this command. Is God a loving father to be obeyed or a petty tyrant to be disposed? And Adam and Eve do the exact same thing. God says, don't do this. And they do it. And they get all the terrible consequences of their disobedience, driven from God, curses, death, with very little to show from it. So back to our passage. So disobedience, God says, do this. We do the opposite. But now it show not just that it's the disobedience, but that it's the disaster and why. So what, what do we see here? We see that disobedience is a direction. Right? Disobedience means walking away from the Lord. And the book of Jonah makes it very clear that Jonah the prophet is running from the Lord. But to be more specific, he's leaving the presence of God. And the text is very clear to show this. It mentions three times that he's running away from the presence of the Lord. Do you notice also that it mentions Tarshish quite a few times, three times in verse 3? It's making the point. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, but it's Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. But in verse 3, twice, he's, he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. It says that twice. And then verse 10, the, the sailors are afraid because he told them that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So, so what is the presence of the Lord? Well, of course, it means to be with God, but think about what that means. Now, my, my children love to have people over. They love to have guests come into the house and they, they will like to play with them and show off their stuff and, you know, they just, it just, and, and it gets even better when people stay overnight. In fact, there was a, a Sunday recently that our brother Larry was over uh, waiting for his ride and, and Sammy came up to him and said, we have a guest bed if you want to stay. You know, he, he just loves to have people over because then you get to enjoy them more in their presence. Well, in an infinitely greater way, God's presence means him living with us so that we can reflect and bask in his glory. That was the point of creation. That's why God made man and woman to be image bearers in his beautiful garden. And did you know that the, the, the garden looks forward, or actually you could say the temple and the tabernacle look back to the garden. There's, well, why do you think that there's, there's pomegranates and trees and cherubim and all these, these garden images on the temples? Why are they all described as mountains? Because the garden was the place where God placed his images and he dwelled with them. That was where God lived with his people originally. Listen to these verses that talk about presence of God. And the first two are negative results of sin. I'm just going to read off the references. I'm not going to turn there. So you can write them down if you want to look at them later. But Genesis 3.8, this is after Adam and Eve disobeyed. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Genesis 4.16, this is after Cain has murdered Abel, and the, and the Lord talks with him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In Exodus, as the Lord is giving instructions for the building of the tabernacle, 2530, he talks about, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, this is a symbol that God's people can come, and they can eat with the Lord symbolically and, and, and feast with him through the representation of the priests. We know Psalm 16 very well. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm of, of trust and delight in the Lord. This is what it says in the very last verse, Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The last phrase of the book of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel is getting this this end times picture of this temple, this idealized place where the Lord will be with his people, the last phrase of the book is, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Going into the New Testament, two chapters, know them well, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for the Greek is the tent. It's the tabernacle. It's his presence. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, of course, in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God, God, that's God's presence. And it's a tragedy to be driven away from his presence. We think it's, it's our joy to experience it now, and we're looking forward to, this is just a hint of what will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's a terrible thing when Jonah goes away from the presence of the Lord. Well, how does Jonah in his disobedience walk away? Well, let's look at geography. Right? In, in scripture, geography often takes on special meaning. How do you meet God? Well, generally, you would meet God on a mountain. Right? Moriah, Sinai, Jerusalem, Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Olives, um, especially, especially the Jerusalem mountain. The, the Garden of Eden was considered figuratively to be a mountain. It says in Ezekiel 28, 13, 14. You can look it up. It talks about it being a, the Garden of God, the Holy Mountain of God. There was these four rivers that flowed down from this mountain where people met the Lord. Of course, God is everywhere, but people met him on mountains in special ways. And that's why the scripture talks about going up. Who shall ascend the hill or the mountain of the Lord, as we read? Listen to this this prophecy in Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains. It shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall come to it. And many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's this idea of moving up is moving into God's presence, into his holiness. With that in mind, you can better understand the consequences of Jonah's disobedience. Did you notice where Jonah is going in this text? He's going down. That's those are the, the adjectives used. Right? And it's not just down as in we're going down the shore or even sometimes I say, you know, I'm going down to my parents, even though both latitudinally and elevation wise, they're up. But, you know, we use that as a figurative speech. No, there, it's pretty clear here that the down has a theological meaning. So verse three, Jonah goes, Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa. So Joppa is already, it was one of the few areas that wasn't controlled by Israel as a port at that time. And so he's moving away from the Lord. He's moving into the area of the Gentiles. And then he goes down into the boat. He's again, is that adjective down again? Now he's moving himself in, in, he's putting himself in the realm of the sea. Verse 5, it says, he goes down into the hold. 
And it keeps using this word down to express how he's moving away from the Lord. And then once it's taken out of his tans, he's thrown into the sea and into the, the waters. In, in chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, which is the bottom of the sea. And by using this geography, the, the, the book of Jonah is saying that each step is moving away from God. He's moving away from what is holy and beautiful. He's moving away to uncleanness, onto the Gentile area. He's moving into the sea, which is the chaos and, and the Hebrew places. It's untamed. Do you see the tragedy here? The tragedy of sin. Our purpose, our present joy is to experience God's presence. That's what gives us hope. You, know, you may ask today, as, as our True, the truth, the true truth, I won't say our truth as it is relevant, but the truth to which we hold is seen as irrelevant, is seen as dangerous, is seen as weird, unnecessary, and, and at odds with what is, is presented as what is the good life. But you know, without the presence of God, we are all looking for something. And today there is, there is more pain and there is more hurt and disillusionment and heartache and, and suicide and mental illness and, and cutting and all kinds of disorders. Why is that? Is it possibly because we've moved away from the presence of the Lord? Is it possibly because we say it's just this life and that's it? You define your purpose, but then you're done. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know what my, how long I'm going to live, but what if I only live the next six months or two years? Is that it for me? Is that my hope, that I get to define my purpose and the little splash that I have while I'm here and then to be forgotten half a generation or one at the most? Is that what life is about? Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We know we live for something more than that. And the Christian faith has had one answer. It doesn't change. It's that we were meant to know and live for and love this God who's created us. And to disobey is to move away from that glory and presence. Perhaps the best way to get at this truth is to tell the first half of a parable Jesus talks about with the father and the prodigal son. Right, you know it well, so I'll just talk about it quickly. But the son lived with a father who we know from the end of the story. He was loving, compassionate. He was a generous man. The son insulted his father by basically saying, Dad, I want you dead. I want your inheritance now. And he walks away. And he wastes the inheritance. And he ends up in a terrible, miserable life feeding pigs, which is not only gross, but it makes him ritually impure. And so he's there miserable. I'm so unhappy but I'm unworthy to go back. You can see how his disobedience, he walks away from the presence of his loving father. So we talked about disobedience being a direction. I want you to see so is holiness. It's the real application for tonight. Holiness is a direction. It's, it's not a line. You know, sometimes kids, if you watch Bugs Bunny, I don't know if you do anymore, but say, I dare you to cross this line. Or this line. Right? Or, or this line. Or we just we have this line or this 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 these list of checks that you know if I if I as long as I keep this list there's usually a list I choose so we often call that legalist legalism that that I'm okay I'm a holy I'm on this side right and if you if you have that kind of view where holiness is a line and as long as I'm you know up to it and don't cross it I'm okay with God well then usually one of some of the reasons you obey is because well I. I know I should, and bad things, I don't want bad things to happen to me, but I'm going to get as close as I can so I can enjoy most of the things. It's kind of hedging my bets, you know? 
Now, now it's true, of course, there are blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. Jonah, you see here, puts great risk to his own life. The sailors, they throw over the cargo. There's a loss of property. Um, you see the consequences for disobedience. But, but obedience is far much more than just buyer insurance or you know, get, get God off your back. You know, you, sometimes people think, I'll just give God a little of what he wants so that I have the rest to do with what I want. But the reason that disobedience is such a disaster is because it, it takes a step away from the incredible God of the universe and I lose the joy of his presence. Of course, his wrath is there too, but here we're talking about the direction of fleeing God. Thinking about, think about Adam and Eve, driven from the presence of the Lord after knowing him, down away from the presence of the Lord. It was a very helpful question when I was a young man in my 20s, pre-seminary, I was reading biblical theology by Gerhardus Voss. I was actually being, I was deployed at the time. And someone thought, he looked at my title and thought it said biblical technology. I was like, well, what kind of book is that? And I was biblical theology. It's a continental theology. You should try them. It's really good. Um, but um, just paraphrase what he said, because I, I think I, I think I got the context tense here, but I'm definitely going to paraphrase it because his language is a little older. But Voss was going through the systems of sacrifice and the idea of being set, a, set apart and what the sacrifices did and the clean and the purification. And he, he said this, when you face a question of what to do, your first question should be, what impact will this have on my relationship with God? When there is a question of, should I do this or not? How will this impact my relationship with God? And this, I would say, extends not just to questions of moral right and wrong, but wisdom. And, you know, and so if I get this new job, how will this impact my relationship with God? If, if, I, if I date this person, how will he or she impact my relationship with God? If I eat this second piece of cake, if I watch this second episode of Netflix. How will that impact my relationship with God? So, so do, you, do you see here from the text how disobedience, your disobedience is a disaster? Not just because of the consequences which are real, but because you're running away from God. Now you and I are told that anything outside that tells us what to do is, is an assault on our freedom. It's limited. It's a power grab that includes God. But if the thing that you need most is Him, and isn't his laws for you a good thing and a loving blessing? So you know, religious people, I'll speak to those of us who, who follow Christ and uh, people outside would look as religious and we, maybe we have an outwardly clean life because of what we do. Um, and it's, it's a lot easier, though, to, to hide some of those respectable sins. And so do you downplay those little sins, those little sins? of gluttony, of, of gossip, of greed. I don't know if I can find any other G-sins. But it, 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 uh, those, those things that can slip under the cracks that no one else can see. Sins that don't immediately show on the surface that, that you could get away with. Live a respectable life. Do, do you understand that in some way you are, you're putting distance, you are walking away from the Lord? You know, it's very easy to nurture and cherish our little secret sins on the side. So it's a little side life that you have. It's, like this, you know, it's just, a, just a little bit of a thing. The Apostle Paul says, do not give the devil a foothold. Do you have a list of approved sins that you scrupulously avoid and yet 
turn a blind eye or never pray like David does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you, do you ever ask the Lord, Look, obviously, there's ways we're saying, but Lord, show me. And then do you repent? Now, Jonah teaches you, do not treat disobedience lightly for it brings disaster. And yet, and yet, it is not the last word. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. He does the exact opposite. He's doing his very best to wreck his life and run away from the presence of the Lord. If he was drugged into court and tried before any fair judge, he would be done. And yet the Lord won't let him go so easily. The Lord intervenes. He We'll look more at this in another time, but he, he, he intervenes with the storm. He gets in Jonah's business here. He stops him in his tracks. There may be some irony. The Lord originally commands him, the main verbs are arise and call out to Nineveh. There's a verb go in there too, but the main verbs are arise and call out. And Jonah's sleeping and the captain wakes him with these words. What are you doing, sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. It could even be that the Lord is using this pagan captain to remind him of his mission. I am not done with you yet, Jonah. But regardless, the Lord disrupts his plans through that lot, forces him to tell all Now, not all storms are a result of sin. Not all trials are because of disobedience. But have you ever noticed in your own life how the Lord can get your attention through a difficulty? He can bring back your wandering gaze. And and what you see here is the principle of the mercy of the Lord in the storm. God is not content to let you run from his presence. He will seek you out and get in your business and intervene in your life. And this is a wonderful encouragement because otherwise we would be helpless. We would be adrift at sea in a ship that's ready to break up. Well, in a small way, this intervention looks then towards the cross of what Jesus does. Right? The cross is that great intervention because all of us from Adam and Eve onward, we've disobeyed. We're, we're heading from disaster. We've run away from God, going away from his presence. We have a storm, a Savior who took the storm for us, who satisfied God's greatest anger so that we can be brought into his presence mentioned earlier the first part of the prodigal son and the son eventually comes to his senses and comes back kind of you know hoping for some kind of work study lend lease program where he can work his way back into at least something of his father's good graces and his father comes running and wraps the son up and wins his heart back through his forgiveness and because of our savior who took the storms on the cross for us that is the father's attitude towards you as well when you have walked away. And so if you are running from God today, maybe you've never confessed Jesus as Lord. Maybe you've bought into the lie that that freedom to choose who whatever you want is, is, is true joy. Or maybe you're hiding some little sin. You're allowing some low grade spiritual fever. Realize that disobedience is a disaster. But you don't have to stay there. It's not the last word. Confess your sin. Lay it at the foot of the cross and draw near to the presence of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are the God who seeks and saves sinners. We thank you for your incredible mercy and patience. As we see little pictures of it in Jonah, as it looks finally to your, your mercy and goodness to us on the cross. Spirit, would 
you convict us of the ways that we hold on to cherished sin and help us to see these are not these are not just pleasant little vices that we hold but they put us in terrible danger and they rob us of our joy in knowing you better and so before the cross can we put them down can we lay them down receive the joy of being forgiven loved and receiving your presence all the more. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.